Welcome to the Acton Vault Podcast, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, we're bringing you a plenary session featuring a conversation with Father Robert Sirico and Michael Novak, which was delivered as part of Acton University 2012. The life of Novak has been a story of intellectual exploration with philosophy, Roman Catholic theology, and economics as the pillars of his career. Novak has changed the hearts and minds of millions to rethink how we approach human anthropology within the free market. Novak was a public intellectual, author, professor, and former U.S. ambassador, among many other things. He was the George Friedrich Jewett Chair in Religion, Philosophy, and Public Policy at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and the 1994 recipient of the Million Dollar Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion. He has authored more than 45 books on philosophy, theology, culture, and economics, including his masterpiece, The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism. Novak passed away on February 17, 2017, at his home in Washington at the age of 83. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash actonvault. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Vault is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. This evening reminds me of what might be called the proto-Acton Institute dinners that took place in your home in Washington, D.C. in the early 1980s when I was a seminarian at the Catholic University of America. And those evenings were just splendid. The cooking was superb. And I just thought you might give us a picture and a bit of the aroma of what went on uh, on those evenings. We had how many? It was a I don't remember how many dinners we had together. A good many. Uh, we had them, Karen and I had them pretty regularly. Uh, Karen was fearless about preparing down-home dinners. It wasn't pretentious at all. In fact, Claire Bruce Luce became a very good friend of ours, and when she'd had a particularly bad day, her secretary would call and say, could you invite Claire to dinner? And would start from there. And uh, she was the center of the conversation, at the center of the conversation many times. What she loved about the meals was their unpretentiousness. There weren't any waiters or butlers or anything. My kids helped serve table, and the rest of us pitched in, people at the table pitched in. And she loved that. And uh, she liked it so much that for her own last dinner, the last meal she had with her family, and uh, I think outsiders were only Karen and me and uh, my daughter Tanya, who reminded her of her daughter, Anne, who was killed in an automobile accident at Stanford. And our Tanya was at Stanford. In fact, she was baptized in the chapel that Claire built for the Newman Center there, St. Anne. So it was, it was really good fun. And I loved having you there, Father, because two or three reasons. So everybody could meet a devout seminarian <laughs> <laughs> and a good priest and a, and a wise there. Uh, conversationalist at these meals. It's very important at a dinner for some Charles Krauthammer and, you know, famous... Uh, uh, Jack Kemp. Jack Kemp, Henry Hyde. Uh, they, they were just Charles famous uh, uh, 
writers and men of and women of pride and distinction. And when you have jewels like that, they reflect best on a dark velvet background of honor and respect. And you need to give them that to, to help them to shine. And you did that. But most of all, Father, we'd like to invite you, because nobody in Washington made a better auntie pasta than you did. <laughs> it took you most of the afternoon and most of our kitchen, but oh, they were magnificent. And uh, uh, so I'm glad you were there many times. I have a letter in my office from Claire Boothloose asking for the recipe. <laughs> I believe it. Um, tell us uh, what we're going to do is kind of attempt uh, tonight to cover uh, your life and your work and then give uh, our audience here at the 2012 Acton University an opportunity to ask you some questions. Okay. Um, tell us a little about your upbringing in Pennsylvania, uh, the nature of your home, a bit about your parents and your brothers. Well, your we were sister. a very poor immigrant family. My parents were... It was my grandparents who came, and my parents decided not to teach us Slovak. They were from Slovakia in the center of Europe, really the very center, very heart of Europe. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, they, they wanted us to learn English and, in a way, jump a generation over mm -hmm. our peers, and, and I think we did. Uh, but I've always regretted not knowing Slovak and the other languages of Middle Europe. Uh, Hungarian would have been next door, and... Uh, Poland, if you understand Slovak. The Slavic languages were first put in dictionary form in the New Testament in Slovakia. Mm -hmm. So at the root of Russian and all the other languages, there's a Slovak uh, a simple beginning. Sorry I didn't have all that, but it was great to be brought up in poverty. It was just great. I mean, uh, not only and in the Depression, not only did you, did you learn to pinch pennies, but... Uh, you learn to live on very little, which is a great asset in a marriage, especially if you're married to what my father-in-law used to call my son-in-law, the celestial philosopher, <laughs> who was... Uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyway, uh, uh, and my grandfather, just say one last word. My grandfather, I remember, he barely spoke English, common laborer, then he worked in the butcher's butcher market, they called it, that he and his wife put together. Uh, general store. And um, I used to remember him sitting in the corner of the kitchen in his home. Uh, after the meals, he'd, he'd, it was a kitchen dining room. He would um, go over to a corner beneath a picture of Our Lady in the, in the Mother of Sorrows or Jesus in the Garden. I don't remember for sure. And he would get out his little wicker basket with his prayer book in Slovak and his rosary. And he'd just pray there for 20 minutes or half an hour. Mm -hmm. And of course, I couldn't understand it. It was in Slovak, but still, it was, I knew what he was doing. And um, in any case, that did rub off on me. I, I very early decided, learned that I wanted to become a priest. I wanted to give my life to God, put it simply. I loved serving Mass early in the morning. Uh, I loved getting there before anybody was there. And in, so then I wanted to go to the seminary after eighth grade because I loved girls. I was very good in football. I had very big hands. I was very fast. It's hard to believe, I know. <laughs> but uh, if you, if I was a very good pass catcher. Your, your brother was already uh, No, no, no. I was, I was the oldest, oh, you were and the I oldest. went first. Okay. And um, um, 
Uh, and then I, my parents then didn't want me to go. Nobody, my pastor didn't want me to go. The nuns didn't want me to go. Everybody tried to stop me from going after eighth grade. They wanted me to go through high school. And I felt high school would be disastrous for me between girls and football. Um, um, so, uh, and my father said the worst way to deal with Michael is to say no. <laughs> you know, he has an incredible willpower, but not much won't power. <laughs> and if you try to stop him, he'll just push right through. Anyway, so I went. My father expected me to come home after one year, then after the second year, then after the third year. And after the 11th year and going into my final year, um, they were convinced I was going to be ordained. And meanwhile, I was having two or three years of very great doubts, not about wanting to serve God, but about where and how. And I, I just thought it's not, the priesthood is not right for me. So, so this, this uh, at the um, end of those studies, in the, the theological part of the studies, yeah. the, these were in Rome. I did, well, I did two years in Rome, got my bachelor equivalent to a master's right. degree there. Right. And then I came back to, I was wanted to leave, and my superior said, you come back, make up your mind in America, leave if you want to, but make up your mind on your home soil with mm -hmm. your family and everything, not overseas. And um, I didn't want to do that, but I did it, and uh, I was later very glad I did. But anyway, I left, um, and um, I just didn't think I would make it as a priest, and if I failed, I would be so miserable, it would be unlivable. Now, let's, let's clear up one uh, myth, uh, one uh, urban legend about you. Yeah. Uh, you wrote a book uh, entitled The Tiber with Silver in 1961, it was published, in which you describe a young seminarian falling in love with an artist in Rome and marrying her. Now, No, not marrying her. Oh, he he went on to be ordained. Oh, he went on to be ordained. Okay. But you fell in love with an artist and married her. Well, Karen, and people think that's uh, Karen. But uh, Karen in the book. Well, I didn't meet Karen for almost three, two years, two years and almost three after, after I left book. the seminary. Okay. And after the book was published, in fact, on my first date, I gave her the book to read, okay. which she thought was immensely pretentious. <laughs> and, uh, um, <clears throat> Uh, and uh, anyway, uh, uh, we had a blind date, and, and I, I don't want to go on in this, but I took one look into her eyes, and I, this is it. And I just, I'm going to, it's a woman I want to marry. Out of prudence, I waited another nine minutes uh, <laughs> uh, before I decided. But it took her a year to make up her mind, and she described it to her mother as I finally ran out of reasons for saying no. I, which a warmer endorsement, a more enthusiastic endorsement I've never seen. Um, but yes, I mean, the description, if you go back and read it, the description in chapter 15 of this young woman, Mary, you know, is uncannily like Karen. Just uncannily. That's amazing. And anyway, that's what happened. So in the 60s, you became a correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter. I, I wrote anywhere I could because I didn't have any money. Right. And, right. uh, you know, I, I get $30. You heard that laughter in the audience. Right? Oh, yeah. believe me, you don't know. Uh, <laughs> but you'd get $30 for an article in those days, uh, $15 for a book of you. $30 would carry me for a week at Harvard. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so. But in the course of writing in the 60s, you, you uh, 
were a kind of correspondent for the Second Vatican Council. You, you were at, uh, well, not at the council, but you were in Rome during the, some of the well, sessions. Well, uh, Karen and I were married in 63 in June, and she loved, she loved Rome. She'd visited. She was an artist. She couldn't imagine a better place to be. And I thought, a council of the church happens only once every 100 years. How can you not be there? So we had we put our wedding purse, which was not much, and took a ship and went to Rome for the second session, writing articles, you know, as everywhere I could do it, Europe, wherever they would get published. We managed to eke it through week by week, and then in December, in November, I got a contract for a book, completely unexpected. The author who had the contract couldn't finish it, turned it over to me. Uh, Catch, I had to have the manuscript in by January 18th. Mm. Uh, that session of the council ended um, uh, December 8th or 5th, something like that. So it's a big book. This um, is the Open Church. Yeah, the Open okay. Church. Okay, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, but let's, let's make sure that everybody understands you were a, a bit on the left in those days, weren't you? Oh, I was very on the left. Uh, not so much politically and economically, although right. if you have a liberal arts education, you drift that way. I mean, mm -hmm. what, are the, what are you free from if you practice the liberal arts? And the single word, work. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, messy, vulgar uh, uh, work. And um, so uh, a liberal arts education tends to make you anti-capitalist, mm -hmm. vulgar, crass, philistine. Um, and, uh, uh, well, but, but theologically, I was a great champion of the council and opening of the church, as the, right. as the title suggests. Um, but I was always aware from the first of the gestures of the fountains in Rome. On every corner, there are these fountains with these old, uh, what do you call them, uh, gargoyles. And out of their mouths spews the water. And they all have an ironic, distant, uh, almost tragic view, uh, gazing at generation after generation, all filled with dreams and mm -hmm. desires and all ending in vanity and mm -hmm. passing. So I, could, I was haunted by that. If you go back and read the book, you'll see that motif from first mm -hmm. page to last. Mm -hmm. And uh, I began with the, with the um, epigram at the beginning, all things good given enough time go badly. And so I was a great enthusiastic of the council. I helped as much as anybody to spread the idea of the spirit of Vatican II, because mm -hmm. I was doing the main reporting in Catholic mm -hmm. circles on mm -hmm. the council as a witness mm -hmm. there. And um, but th there were dinner parties and meetings in Rome in those days with a lot of people who were doing similar kinds of reporting to your own. No. Oh yeah, but also Robert with, McAfee Brown. And, yeah, uh, and uh, well. He was there as a Protestant observer right. with a great deal more dignity than a mere Catholic had right. <laughs> in those days at the council, at Catholic Laban. And uh, it was great to watch the bishops come up in school buses. I mean, you never saw anything so funny as 38 uh, princes of the church getting out of a school or in a school bus <laughs> one after the other. Uh, and uh, it was just an unbelievably romantic and great mm -hmm. time. Yeah. It was just... Just wonderful. But yeah, dinners, not so much the first year when I was on my own purse, but the second year, Time magazine asked me to go back. 
and they couldn't spend enough money. I mean, they, they couldn't take any money out of Rome by the treaty. They had to spend everything they earned in Italy. So they kept pressing money on me, and I wasn't taking enough, and I got reprimanded. And, uh, and the point, you're supposed to go to dinners and lunches. So, you know, I would get Rahner and Kung and, and Young Ratzinger and... Um, Dulles in those days? Did you know Avery uh, no, I didn't then? know Avery. I knew Bernadine. Bernadine was a young priest, uh-huh. uh, secretary. This would be the later Cardinal Cardinal Bernadine of Chicago. in Chicago. Mm. And uh, um, we, we knew practically everybody. Mm-hmm. And I never met Wojtyla there. I, I knew Wojtyla mm. was important. And I really regret... You, you knew he, he was important then? Either. Oh, yeah. Because uh-huh. he was on the Council of Five or something who uh-huh. planned out the church in the world and led that... To uh-huh. that discussion. Uh-huh. And at the end, at the beginning, all the bishops were asked for advice, and he said the council, he was a young man, the youngest then, and he, he had a, his comment was that the council should be founded around two notions. The person, the, the difference between a person, a cat and a son or daughter. They're, they're totally different. And what is it that makes a difference? Mm-hmm. So he had written his own book. He was writing his own book on the person. So the person and the community. What is the community? How does the community nourish the person and the person, the community, as the two key notions? And that's what happened. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he's the one who insisted on the Declaration of Religious Liberty. When the, count, the bishops were undecided and the pope was hesitating, he said, we can't go back to Eastern Europe without that. We must have that. So it went through. But uh, if I have my chronology correct, about this time, uh, or maybe when you came back to the United States, the Apostolic Nuncio in the United States uh, called for your silencing. I don't know that, Father. Oh. I don't know that. uh, My research tells me that. Well, uh, you know. Have you ever heard that before? Is this a surprise to you? It's it's not a surprise because I got an inkling of it before when you were telling Mm. me uh-huh. Questions you might want to ask, and uh, I, uh, I, uh, well, I asked for that. I mean, I don't go do an interview without asking for a little bit of help. Sure, for no, 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 of you know, you don't want to be two ships passing in the night. You want to, you want to get it done. And, um, and I didn't know that, and I do know I was banned in certain dioceses. I've been banned on the right, and I've been banned on the left. I, you know. I, I, I've had experiences on both sides. Mm-hmm. Well, you're most known today, I think it's fair to say, in terms of your economic thought. But um, theology has always been in one of your real loves, and philosophy. Uh, and this has had a major interest in your work. Um, who were your favorite theologians? Uh, whose influence uh, can one see in your work? Well, people I like most, I try to build my life around, are uh, Jacques Maritain and a philosopher who had great interest in theological questions, questions which in a way are posed by theology for a philosopher, like the notion of the person. The person is, is an idea that it arose from the discussions of the Trinity. How can Jesus be both God and man. Well, is God as a person, the human being as a person, Mm -hmm. united in Mm -hmm. personhood. Well, what's a person? And that's a problem for philosophy. And it's a central, central problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, emerged clearest in the 20th century of all things. But anyway, uh, 
So Maritain, and then Bernard Lonergan, whom I had in Rome, a Jesuit, not so famous, but just brilliant. Uh, I'm not alone in thinking he's the best mind in the Catholic Church since Thomas Aquinas. And uh, even considering Cardinal Newman, I think he's got a better uh, and a deeper mind, a clearer mind. And he has the advantage of doing his thinking and writing in English, which is a very rich language, concrete language. And it has a natural Aristotelian bent to it. If you think of Aristotle as always pointing to the earth and Plato as always pointing to heaven, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, English is a down-to-earth mm-hmm. language. And, um, uh, and, his, and then Reinhold Niebuhr, the great evangelical mainland uh, Protestant theologian, mm-hmm. uh, I loved his work. Uh, he gave me a great deal of encouragement when I was young. It's, you know, to be completely modest, he thought I was his best or among his best interpreters in the United States, young mm. as I was. Mm. And um, my idea of story and narrative and so on come from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially the notion of sin. He was so good on understanding the sinfulness of human beings and the, the limitations and the, even a notion that St. Augustine had that even when you were forgiven your sins, it's... It's like having thrown your knee out. And even when it's healed, you have to be real careful you don't throw it out again. Mm-hmm. It's always got a weakness mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and of course, that's what the American idea is founded on, isn't it? Mm-hmm. The fact that every human being is uh, sometimes a sinner. And therefore, you have to place your trust not in human beings, but in God. In God we trust. Nobody else, as the saying goes. There was a, a turn in your theology, uh, roughly in what the late seventies, the early eighties. Uh, you you went from being the author of theology for radical politics to the author of the spirit of democratic capitalism, and took a yeah. lot of um, criticism. Well, I, my uh, after the Vatican Council, I thought there are so many great theologians working on theology. I better learn a little bit more about politics and economics if I want to be like Niebuhr and Maritain, for that matter. And um, uh, so I spent as much of my energy doing that as I could, continuing my studies in theology. And, um, and so I, I determined not to specialize in the theological, prepare myself more for teaching in a secular university and in secular environments. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, uh, uh, I went to Stanford, hired me right out of graduate school. I didn't even have my doctorate then, and I never did get it. But I went to Stanford as an associate professor, and, and um, due to Robert McAfee Brown, you mentioned, uh, from mm-hmm. Stanford, and, and um, uh, started learning about it, more about politics. I wanted to learn economics, but I learned quickly. That's very difficult. You have to learn a lot of things. And, and economics is, is sort of backwards. It's counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked in politics first. And I loved the student rebellion, at least at Stanford, not Berkeley, but at Stanford in 1965 when I went there, 66, 67, left in 68, um, because it was so rooted in conscience and integrity and authenticity. And these were notions I was trying to communicate through Albert Camus, my other favorite writer of that time, because he did both 
philosophy and fiction. I wanted to be a novelist uh, more than anything. Mm -hmm. um, I just didn't have the talent. Um, but um, uh, so I, and I was always critical of the kind of liberal politics represented it at Harvard. Value-free, supremely pragmatic, no big questions. That's metaphysics. Um, and the rest, I, I didn't like that sort of liberalism. And so I became a critic of that. I did an article for uh, Harper's Magazine in my first year in graduate school called God in the Colleges, in which I attacked that very severely. And that article became one of the founding articles of the New Left. Tom Hayden and others circulated it. Um, it was a critique of liberalism from the left, but from a philosophical. Would, would you say that it was um, uh, a critique from the left, of the left? Yes. Yeah. And so Bobby, this is more radical. Yes, uh, uh, yes, it was. That's how I you know, began to think of myself as more radical, because the liberals didn't yeah. like me. I, right. mean, uh, and, um, I mean, I didn't like the liberals, so it was reciprocal. Uh, but um, um, still don't. I, well, I, I wrote a piece about this. Um, what was it called? The Secular Saint, mm -hmm. a long piece in the Methodist magazine called Motive, a great magazine out of Nashville in its time, and it was put in the hands of Robert Kennedy by the editor of the Nashville Tennessean, and Bobby Kennedy came to see me in California, first person he saw in California when he was campaign, decided to campaign. He said he decided to campaign after reading that article. Now, he may have told that to 100 people. You know, I, I'm not going <laughs> to judge politicians very harshly, but... Uh, oh, please do. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, I like the guys. I, there's only one I don't like. Um, that was John Anderson, not to make you uh, uh -huh. wait too long. <laughs> he was so pretentious. Uh, you, when, you, he gave his, when he gave his... Uh, renunciation speech, dropped himself out of the race. Be before he was introduced, I said to Karen, we were watching it at night, and I said to Karen, I know half of what he's going to say. She looked at me with, in a way a wife does, and uh, I said, I, 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 I. <laughs> and, I and it's true. That's what happened. Uh, what, what, uh, were you a speechwriter from McGovern? Or, well... Um, I'm like a Budweiser horse, and every time, I, every time, every four years, my paws start beating on the earth, uh -huh, you know, uh -huh. and I'm ready to go. Uh -huh. I just love primary campaigns. Uh -huh. I've taken part in every one since '68, mm. and um, I might have missed one or two. Are you still a Democrat? I just stopped being a Democrat two years ago. I had to register in Delaware because I sold my house in Washington after Karen's death. And um, I needed to get my driver's license and you have to register in order to get your driver's license. And I said, put me down as independent. And, uh, and she was gonna do that. And I said, wait a minute, does that mean I can still vote in the primary? She said, no. I said, put me down as Republican. And it was the abortion issue more than anything else. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't going to give my economic issues more and more too, but mm -hmm. the the bottom line was I. So let's circle back to the study of politics and economics, and this kind of precipitates a change in your your thinking and has an impact on your theological dispositions. Well, yes, uh, although my theology has been fairly consistent. I mean, there are some mm -hmm. changes, but. 
I had such a good foundation in Lonergan and uh, Durwell's book on the resurrection and so many other great books that I read, Guardini and uh, De Lubach, most of all. And uh, so I, I had a good, good, deep foundation, which, which just withstood a kind of all kinds of shocks and hits. But um, uh, I became more critical of the left. And then I was hired at Old Westbury, an experimental college, where the most left-wing student we had um, was almost isolated because he was supporting Gene McCarthy. Uh, nobody else, everybody thought elections are bourgeois illusion. It was, it was just crazy place. And that, but they all cited authors from the far left. Everything they did was justified by an author that I had read and admired. Mm -hmm. And I realized, boy, there's something crazy here. And I started criticizing that part of the left and I began losing more and more of my friends. And, and you know, so I became a critic of the left from the left. So it wasn't and, a road a critic to Damascus. Of the left too. Yeah, it wasn't road to Damascus. No, I wish it, it were a road gradual. to Damascus. It'd be easy to describe, but yeah. no, it was a thousand little cuts. Okay. I was for the war on poverty, and then already two years later, violent crime among adult young adults was way way up. Mm -hmm. Kennedy started a commission to study juvenile delinquency, mm -hmm. and passed a big bill to help reduce. Quaint term. Where's the last time you heard that? Mm -hmm. Now it's called violent youth crime. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought, boy, that this war on poverty isn't doing what it was supposed to do. Talk to us about liberation theology. Well, okay, okay. You now, the, I... no, the underlying, that's good. But yeah. the underlying part of this is I taught courses for, um, in Guernavaca. Uh, what was the name of the priest who had that institute, study of languages, but he, Peter Berger and I, and I think Richard Newhouse um, lectured there. And I was, I was lecturing on the coming revolution, you know. Mm -hmm. But I didn't say much about economics because I didn't know enough. Mm -hmm. And Peter Berger had just completed a study of the, quote, four little tigers of Asia, and he, he was, wrote Ugo a- Ugo Osman? Osman? Oh, no, I did meet him, but- yeah, uh, No, I thought that's who you were talking about. No, no, he, he was a great Dominican, um, Macher and Shaker from... Uh, Not Frabetto. Frabetto? No. Frabetto? No, I, I, okay. I'm anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, that's senior, okay. senior moment, but... Uh, um, Too senior moment. <laughs> and anyway, um, um, Berger had written a book, Pyramids of Sacrifice, which was like a plague on both your houses. Socialism is cruel and terrible, but so is capitalism. Mm -hmm. And then he studied the four little tigers of Asia and saw that they had doubled their income and then since 1945, 1950, doubled their income again and doubled their income again and doubled it again. And uh, they were now living at about the level of Southern Europe. And so there was, it suddenly hit him that capitalism can actually lift the poor. And he had to put that in, and then he made us. Anyway, he had a big influence on me on being more kind to capitalism, less, less. Uh, mm. but why? How? How could I understand self-interest, selfishness? How could I understand markets? How? How can? I had the mental image that to have order, there needs to be command, mm -hmm. and it took me a while to realize there are all kinds of order, like a path up a mountain, in the in the Alps. Uh, Every mountain you hike, 
you find paths already there, cut by scores of thousands of hikers in the past based on experience. Mm -hmm. A slow path for saving your energy and enjoying the views, and a more arduous, quick path if you're young and want to get there mm -hmm. up there fast, you know? And uh, uh, nobody planned those, nobody ordered those, but practical people trying to be efficient find the best way to do it, the best order to do it. So there is a kind of order that comes out of practical mm -hmm. activities. So uh, get into liberation theology, because we, Liber we, liberation we met uh, having to do a lot with that when I suggested. Yeah. You, I think you had written an article in the New York Times magazine, would it have been, on liberation theology? No, I, 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 it was a chapter of the open church, Why is Latin America Poor? And uh, the Atlantic published it. And it was one of the, Atlantic is over 100 years old, and it was one of the two articles in their entire history that drew the most mail. Mm -hmm. Every professor of Latin American studies in the United States and some from outside wrote their own opinion. They were about half and half, mm -hmm. damning the article and praising it. So I saw that and I said, why not a book? Because at that time, I think there was only one book that dealt with liberation, the other, Shawl, Father Shawl at Georgetown had a series of essays but I didn't remember any critique. And there was well, a, a veritable library of books in favor once of... Once the spirit of democratic capitalism came out, I started having invitations from all over Latin America. Mm -hmm. I went to Latin America so often, I went to Chile so often, mm -hmm. that the Secretary of State told me that uh, if I came back one more time, they'd make me a citizen. <laughs> and, and the head of the Socialist Party, who later became the president mm -hmm. of Chile, asked if he could publish the spirit of democratic capitalism under the socialist imprint, hmm. just to show people that socialism is not based on the bad economics of the 19th century. Marx and Lenin were completely wrong about that. Socialism is essentially a cultural movement, trying to change the culture, non-Christian, non-Jewish, uh, secular, sexual liberation, etc. That's what socialism is. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, um, so I went so often, and then I was becoming aware of liberation theology. And so I wrote a book, Will It Liberate? Just asking the practical question, does it work? Show me after these thousands of pages of liberation theology, and I read them until my eyeballs were hanging out. Boring, boring, boring. And not a word about how you'd actually help the poor. Right. So I was saying, show me how it helps the poor. And um, uh, nobody could answer. Um, Gutierrez, one of the founders of it from Peru, told me uh, shamefacedly that, look, he was a theologian, not an economist, and he went to the universities, the sociology and economics, and that's what they told him. So he said he's not committed to the Marxism. He, that's what he was told was, was the big thing. And, um, mm -hmm. and anyway, it disappeared. As soon as Latin America turned democratic in the Reagan years, nation by nation by nation, um, Liberation theology, theology, supposedly people's religion, could not mount a political party, could not run a successful candidate. It was, it was a mirage. And so it pretty much disappeared, except as a spiritual force. An influ one, one influence uh, of liberation theology in the United States, as some would contend, I would contend, was seen in the 1986 Bishop's Pastoral Economic Justice for All. Now, you were very involved in orchestrating a, um, 
I didn't call it a response piece, but it hey, was look, the lay letter. It started in 1984. Right. When Claire Booth Lewis, no, in 1981, when Reagan was in and right. and a, a bishop's going to do a, a letter on nuclear arms, I think 80, right. started in 83. Yes. And um, Claire Booth Lewis called me and um, there was an American Bill general. Bill Simon. Well, no, it, Simon wasn't intimately involved in the first one. He was involved, but not intimately. It was more military people and uh, people in foreign policy. Catholic, and we got a hundred anyway. Mm -hmm. Dick Allen and a whole bunch of mm -hmm. others. Um, trying to think, there was a Polish Catholic four-star general, um, uh, Vernon Williams, uh, Vernon, mm -hmm. what was his name? Who uh, The uh, CIA man for a long time. Vernon Williams. Please. Is that right? Vernon Gore, uh, Vernon... Not George. Jordan. Jordan, <laughs> no, no? No, that's the basketball player. Vernon. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, there has to be something done. So I put together a team of people. We had meet regular meetings, and, and um, we wrote... Uh, a pa we're the first lay people in history to issue a pastoral letter. Right. <laughs> um, and after all, the left magazine saying we need the bore the voice of the layman, and when we suddenly appeared, they hated it. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, yes, uh, and that the, Archbishop Winkland was none too impressed with it, as I recall, when you and Bill Simon went to see him. No, but no, that was the economic letter. Oh, I'm sorry, two years true. later. Yeah, but but it was the, the Vatican. The minute the nuncio saw this, I took it to him to show it because we're going to come out. And we don't mean it to be critical of the bishops. We're, we don't know what the bishops are going to say, but we think this is a lay issue. We should, and he read it. And he called me back that afternoon and said, I'm putting it in the Vatican tonight. They're having a big meeting with the European theologians Friday, and it'll be very important to them. So they distributed mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. and the Germans and French followed that model, not the American bishops model. So it had its... Anyway, so Bill Simon called me two, three years later when they were going to do a pastoral letter on the economy, and he said, hey, Look, this is a layperson's job. This is not a bishop's job to write mm -hmm. about economic. Mm -hmm. How can you live in the country which has brought up more poor people into being middle class and wealthy than any in history and not see it's an immense success for the poor? And how can the Catholic bishops of the United States not see that? I mean, if they addressed a pastoral letter to the Catholic population in 1930. Six, 1934, they have addressed a population overwhelmingly poor. Mm -hmm. They were writing in 1984, and they're overwhelmingly middle class and successful and some wealthy. And they didn't see that. So uh, we, we wrote a letter, and uh, I asked Archbishop Weakland. He was a good friend of mine. He was born about 15 miles away from where I was born. And um, um, I asked him, I said, look, we're not writing this in opposition to you. We don't even know what you're saying. I want to send you a copy of what we're doing in advance so you're not surprised. And I said, we're, I would like your advice on when to release it. I would like to release it before the bishop's letter, so it's clearly not a criticism. It's just a lay reflection. If what, we release it after you have your meeting and you vote in your paper, it will look like criticism. And I, I don't want to be in that position. I said, well, you choose. And he thought about it and he realized if we publish it first, it'll be right in time of the election. We'll be blown out of the water by the election news. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but we figured an angle. We published it on election day, and the day after the election, there's really not a lot to do, mm-hmm. and even on election day. Uh, so we had a lot of coverage while people are waiting for the returns, right. and then the papers are deluged right. with their returns. We've been selling copies of that for years. Well, there may be still some of It's all over the world. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. lots of bishops in different countries wrote it, but anyway. Um, we, we, we have to kind of wrap this part of it up and then open it up. Um, you were one of the first to write about um, business as a vocation. In fact, you have a book by that yeah. name. Um, for many people, that's a radical idea. Uh, why don't you say a little bit more about business as a calling from God? Karen said to me many times that, uh, um, and what Sam said about a woman who must be obeyed, Chesterton said a marriage is essentially, a married couple is essentially a four-legged animal with one will, hers. (laughs) And the sooner you recognize it, the happier it is. I mean, it's just just a lot better. As a Spanish... Latin American friend of mine said, in principle, the husband must have the last word in every argument. But in prudence, it better be, yes, dear. <laughs> uh, and uh, so she said to me, Michael, you write a simpler book, a more direct book than Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, which I felt I had to build like a battleship because I knew everybody would attack it. Mm-hmm. My own publisher wouldn't publish it couldn't stand a book on capitalism in the title. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, some of my friends were, they backed off from being friends until they saw the reception. So I knew it was going to be attacked, and I tried to make it as formidable as I could make it. Uh, But Karen said, write a simpler, more direct book. And so I thought of all these business students I met who were a little bit ashamed about being business students at Notre Dame and Mm -hmm. other places. And um, oh, funny story on that. It would put the picture exactly right. Um, I got a call from a professor at Notre Dame in the theology department. He was trying to put together a program on, he was partly at the business school, on business and theology. And the theology department would not cooperate unless... They addressed the question, uh, can a Christian work for a corporation? And he said, look, we've had the theology department, we've had the business school for decades, and they've never had a meeting. He said, this is scandalous. (laughs) And he said, I've been negotiating for months, but they won't do it unless we do that. I said, I won't speak on that. He said, you have to. And it's the only way we'll do it. I said, okay, I'll do it. So I went to my friend Irving Crystal at AEI, and I said, Irving, I'm supposed to speak on can a Christian work for a corporation? What can I do? And Irving just looked at me slyly in his way and said, just tell them, no. Only Muslims and Jews. <laughs> and uh, so I did, and they were speechless. They didn't know what, they wanted me to say yes and feel guilty. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I said, well, can a... Uh, Catholic priests teach physics? It's that kind of question. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I thought business students need a way of understanding what they're doing. It's a noble piece of work. Mm-hmm. You want to set an ideal so that people have to live up to it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's there. 
the, you know, the, you can't have a business unless you have three fundamental virtues. You have to have a strong person with initiative and daring. You know, behind, it is a saying, behind every successful, well, let me put it in chauvinist terms. Behind every successful husband, there's a lovely little woman telling him he's wrong. Um, and friends telling him he's going to lose his shirt. There are times when you, if you're going to do something, you have to do it against all advice. And the businessmen know that, so they, that's why they talk about the individual so much. There are many, many times when they had to stand alone against everybody. On the other hand, you can't build a business unless you build a community around it. Mm -hmm. First thing you have to do is hire a lawyer, mm -hmm. uh, but you've got to get good workers, you've got to provide for their pension plans, you've got you to build customers and good relations, you've got to build suppliers. And your network, and uh, mm -hmm. person, community, and then practical wisdom. And uh, these are all classical, practical wisdom. Uh, there's a U.S. battle cruiser in a high, uh, high waves and bad weather. There's a ship coming directly at it, a light coming directly at them. They flag and send more, everything to send signals to move to starboard or port. It doesn't move. And... Uh, uh, so the admiral's called out of his bed and come up to the deck and take charge, and he says, uh, uh, signal them that this is uh, Admiral Jones and this is the U.S. cruiser, da-da-da-da, and he said, uh, uh, so move to starboard, and the, uh, the uh, message comes back, this is Seaman Second Class Smith, I'm on a lighthouse, he said, move to port, hit hard to port quickly. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, this is not a matter of disputation now. Right. This is right. just practical wisdom. Sure. So anyway. Let's, let's get some people into this discussion. Let, let me, while you're preparing and indicating um, uh, that you want to uh, ask a question, there are microphones uh, being circulated. Uh, there are a lot of young people here, and we went through names without identifying them. I just suggest that one of the reasons for having this discussion with uh, Ambassador Novak tonight was to really give you a glimpse into the history of uh, this last century, and uh, particularly with regard to theological, philosophical, and economic thinking, and, and the relationship of these, and just the, the names that you mentioned, the people you knew, the, the writings and stuff. Just Google a number of those names if you don't know some of those names, uh, and you'll be uh, impressed later on uh, with the fact that we have uh, Michael Novak with us tonight. So you're going to have to tell me if uh, there's somebody who has a question because I can't see a thing uh, from here. Yes, I think over there. Yes, um, I'm a bibliolic, actually, not a bibliophile. And you mentioned uh, a professor that you had in Rome that you thought was on a, on a par with Niebuhr and, uh, and Aquinas, but I didn't catch the name, and I was desperately looking through the material trying to find a, a bibliography. Could you mention his name in a, in a book that you might recommend to us? Uh, Bernard Lonergan, L-O-N-E-R-G-A-N-S-J. Um, he wrote a, a Canadian, wasn't he? Canadian. Yeah. Um, and he wrote a book called Insight, The Study of Human Understanding. And his basic theme is that the two most common distinctive acts that make us human 
um, and that constitute what we mean by human spirit are the act of insight. You open your refrigerator door, you're trying to figure out what you want to make for lunch or dinner, you're living alone, let's say, and you look over what's there, and you start thinking of what your stomach desires and what you feel like, and suddenly it hits you, this is what I'll do. That's an insight. Or you come up, people are laughing at a joke, you didn't hear the punchline, you don't know what they're laughing about, and you're the only one not laughing, you nudge your friend, and what's, you know, what's, what, and he gives you the punchline, then you break out laughing after everybody else. It's an insight. So it's the most common action, human action. And animals don't have it. And, um, and bright people have it more frequently than people who aren't so bright. Uh, but a lot of insights are wrong, and that's why bright people make so many mistakes. And in general, you know, and in, some big ones. <laughs> yeah, in politics and economics, they're almost always wrong. Uh, the universities almost always have things wrong. Uh, who, who was it who said that there's nothing so disturbing to a grand, elaborate theory than an ugly little fact? <laughs> Something, yeah. But anyway, and then judgment. Um, granted, that some you have a lot of bright ideas, but most of them don't work out. Well, it's a matter of good judgment to, to, to be able to discern which ones are real, which ones are true, which ones are good. And granted, that's provisional, but you're ready to die for that. You have the evidence for that, and you'll hold what you can hold, and then move. And decisions to love, to commit yourself, you know, can be a long struggle, as it was between Karen and me, about... We didn't have any doubt about loving each other for the first time, but whether to marry or not. And that's a commitment. And don't tell me it's just a, a blow that hits you. You do a lot of solid thinking about it. And um, it's not theoretical thinking. It's very practical, but it matters very much what you do. So don't tell me it isn't a use of judgment. There it is. So I think th those are one... And if you, if you play that through epistemology and metaphysics. It's amazing the problems that Lonergan leads to. Also, his book on the Trinity. Um, I had to read it in Latin because I was in Rome. And also his book on the Incarnation. They are translated into English and the, the Canadian uh, Jesuits have put all his books in English in Toronto, at the Regis House, I think it is, in Toronto. Um, but they're, they're just the most brilliant discussions of the nature of God that the Christian God that one can encounter. Mm -hmm. And they resolve a number of issues. Anyway, sorry. And there's another question over here. Yes. Uh, professor, I, I really enjoyed your talk. And I so much time myself to be so much pleased and opportune to be here this evening to listen to you. I just want to take you out a little bit not with, uh, in the ambience which you spoke this evening, but on the side on the work you have already written on business as a vocation. In the world today, we see the countries and also the continents being loomed in crisis, economic crisis. We have heard of so many countries looking out for loans to be taken out of debt. We have of Greece, we have taken out of that of, uh, uh, that of Spain and Italy, and we don't know the next country that may be the victim. Since business is a vocation and you have taken your time to make a good research on it, how can we be able to give a preemptive advice 
on the leaders of the world on how to overcome the crisis that is really destroying our nation, our continent, our world today. Thank you. Well, yeah, so if you could just solve the problem of the whole world. Um, <laughs> and you have about two minutes to do it. As you're getting over the rush of power coming to my fingertips, <laughs> um, I, I want to make two comments. First of all, it's important to understand the nature of capitalism and the nature of business. So the Socialist Dictionary, in fact, all the American dictionaries, define capitalism as free markets, uh, uh, private property, and... Um, Rule of law? No. Enterprise? No. Uh, Competition? No, don't, don't. Looking at it from, looking at it from a... Uh, Anyway, it, 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 but that, that, fits, that fits every economy since Jerusalem in the Bible. Thou, thou shalt not steal, so it has private property. Uh, it was nothing but a marketplace, exchange. It, there was no industries, there was no primary goods there. Uh, markets don't make capitalism. Um, what makes capitalism is invention, innovation, ideas. Uh, Lincoln's the greatest teacher of it. If you read the economics of Abraham Lincoln, I, I don't have time to, to do that now. But he, that's why the land-grant colleges, if you can invent a seed that produces a yield of three or four more grains than the other seeds, you, you're a great benefactor of the human race. And it's out of knowledge that wealth proceeds. So capitalism is invention, it's enterprise, it's discovery. Practically every corporation in the United States, every business and around the world is built on an idea, a new idea, a new good, a new service, a new way of doing them. Um, so creativity, we are made in the image of God to be creators. That, that's the basic. Now, there's a second idea competing in the world, which is equality, not liberty, but equality. And equality administered by the state, since private citizens are not to be trusted, uh, you turn it over to the state. And the state has the purpose of doing good. It can never do enough good. It's in, the, the needs of people are infinite. And to the extent that the state starts to supplying them, they become less and less independent, more and more dependent. They demand more, always more. There's no country can sustain that. And to the extent we have Following the lure of the welfare states, you need a welfare state up to a limit, but you have a very, very uh, stout limit because otherwise you create a, a nation of dependence, of serfs. You build a great government plantation and you develop a new kind of human person. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Dependent, dependent, dependent. And, um, and, uh, uh, I predicted maybe 20 years ago that Europe was gonna, the welfare state was gonna start falling apart. There's no way you can sustain a system in which more and more people live beyond 65, healthcare becomes more and more expensive, and the number of workers providing for their old age assistance is not seven, which is what it was at the time of Bismarck, but two. There's no way it's self-sustaining. People are going to start to call in all the promises made to them, and the states aren't going to be able to supply them. That's what's happening. Greece, 
Spain, Italy, France is behind it. Um, Great Britain and Germany are staving it off some. And uh, the United States is in it. We've got to cope with it. So the humanitarian instinct to do good is beautiful, but it can be self-destructive very easily. So you have to you have to leave more room. You have to understand that you can only do this if you create wealth. And you have to have more room. You have to understand the conditions under which wealth is uh, created and favor those conditions. And then you can have a, have prosperity and a boom, and out of that abundance, do an even better, more intelligent welfare set of welfare programs. So, you know, I think that's the crisis. It's not a crisis of capitalism. It's a crisis of the welfare state, and capitalism only insofar as we give in to this. We'll take one more question from the audience. Uh, Ray Flores, Chicago, with American Life League and Better Catholic Giving. Ambassador, just a quick question. You mentioned your time in Rome during the Vatican II Council. Can you share uh, somewhat, I mean, the biggest shock, I think, was going from the Latin Mass to the, to the Mass being in vernacular across the world. What are your thoughts on that and how it's created, I guess, divisions in, in today's Catholic world? Well, first of all, I was entirely in favor of that change, and it seemed to me uh, just transparently self-evident why that should be so. Uh, in the period before Vatican II, I used to watch the faces in Catholic Church with me when Mass was being recited in Latin. And if they didn't know Latin at all, they couldn't have been more bored. And they were praying their rosary and other things. Uh, those who understood the Latin understood that there's just a beauty to the liturgical Latin, a succinctness and a wit and an elevation and a way of thinking that's not like the Lions Club or the Rotary Club. It's, it's a different mental world. And entering into that different mental world is, is a, very important to worship. Um, but I never imagined at Vatican II, nor did Vatican II ever imagine, that Latin would perish. It was always supposed to be Latin masses. But English masses normally, ordinarily, but not every Sunday, every mass. Or Latin and English. The canon in Latin and uh, well, proper in yeah, English. Well, yeah, although... Uh, oh, okay. I mean, I'm I'm willing to. I'm not a purist in that, though I know people who are. But I do love the restoration of the Latin, which we're undergoing now. That is the possibility of the Latin. It's great to go wherever you go in the world. It really is, and has celebrated mass in Latin with fellow Catholics in one language. It's like Hebrew. For, for it's a very important bond. And I, I want to repeat: the mental discipline involved in Latin is extraordinary. And the, six, the beauty, the liturgical beauty, um, that you can do puns in Latin just by the change of a letter or two on the, on the, on the ending. That Augustine was so brilliant, and so many are Aquinas' hymns are just untranslatable. They're so clever and so, so exact. So people who don't know the Latin are really missing the beauty of, of what our ancestors have created over centuries. I want to take a point of special privilege just to ask you a final question and just tell us some of your memories of Blessed John Paul II. Well, I had the privilege of going to Mass with him in his private chapel maybe five times. 
And you never saw anybody pray as he prayed. I mean, he'd be hunched over before Mass and all through Mass, and he was in a world of his own. Uh, he was there with us, but he wasn't there with us. Um, and it, this is something people have commonly expressed on, on having been with him, that he's in, he goes into a kind of a mystical, he can't use the language very well, or a trance of being in the presence of God, and the presence of God absorbs him. Um, so that's, I think, the most important thing. Second, I also had the privilege of having lunch or dinner with him a dozen times. In fact, this is impossible to believe, and don't believe it if you don't want to, but his secretary instructed me, anytime I'm coming to Rome, write ahead or just call when I'm there, and if the Pope is free, he'll see me. Um, I knew the price of that was I had to come prepared with a joke, because he loves jokes. And um, um, so, so I would. And most of the time, I, I was invited, not alone, but with others. Or if my friends were invited, George Weigel or Father Giemba, my Polish colleague, um, who, who the Pope liked like a son, loved like a son. Um, uh, you know, if they were invited, they'd invite me, like that. And um, the most amazing thing, how down to earth, eating with the Pope was like eating with your uncle or your grandfather. And I'm Central European, the same kind of food. And, and it was just very plain. We, we'd have the mandatory pasta because we were in Italy. But everything else would be uh, overcooked veal or pork or uh, red cabbage or, you know, uh, um, Central European dishes, a little lemon cake at the end. It was his favorite dessert. There's a Polish name for it, which I don't remember. And his eyes twinkled like St. Nick's, the bright blue. He loved jokes. He was very direct in his questioning. He said to me once, he said, I just came back from a trip to Brazil, Colombia. It was incredible misery. He said, what can we do? What should we do for the poor in the third world? Same question you pulled a few minutes ago. And uh, I said, I know this seems silly, Father, but there, you've got to do three things. I said, in Brazil, the average age of education, the years in education, is three years of education. I said, that's a sin. The most important resource in every country is the human mind. That's the cause of wealth, human wit. So you've got to do education. Second, you've got to make it possible for people to start small businesses. And you can't start a business without credit. If you're poor, you don't have any money to start a business. And you can't make something unless you can buy the materials, etc. So there has to be a way of getting credit without paying 20, 30, and 40%, which is what they charge you on the black market there. I said, you know, that's a sin against the poor. And you've got to find a way of... And third, you've got to find a way of incorporating businesses um, cheaply and quickly. In Hong Kong, it's 30 days maximum. And you do it in writing, and you pay 30, equivalent of US $30, and that's it. Because states don't create corporations, individuals do. The state has a right to register them in terms of the rule of law. But it's important to be incorporated, because if somebody sues you, and they will, they'll try to put a small businessman out of business in Guatemala or anywhere else. Um, they'll be able to take everything away from you, your home even, unless you're incorporated 
and they can attack your legal person, but not your real person. It's, it's three things is all you have to do. And the best measurement of how well you're doing in a country is how many new small businesses are being started every year. If you keep that on the uptick, uh, things are gonna look, look better. And I, by the way, I have Novak rule of how you can tell when this is another way to tell when it's working, by the length of women's skirts. Uh, when things are looking grim, the skirts get longer. Uh, when they're looking better, the skirts get shorter. And you know, there came a time in Central Europe when there was no more shorter to get. Um, and, uh, um, but it, oddly, it was better for the women than the young men, because for the young men, it was hard to find jobs and to be able to support a woman in the way she should be supported and a child. It was pretty intimidating. Anyway. Please join me in thanking Ambassador Michael Novak. <laughs>